welcome. Um, my name is Anwar Majid, and I'm the director of the Center for Global Humanities. <laughs> a, a public forum dedicated to the study and discussion of the critical issues facing our world today. Uh, the Senate reflects the University of New England's commitment to a robust civic culture, one that is guided by the age-tested insights of the humanities and the classical liberal arts tradition. We believe that education and intellectual engagement are the only buffers we have left between chaos and civilization. <laughs> We need to invest in these endeavors, not cut them out from our priorities, as many are prone to do, this in, to do in these fiscally tough times. We are proud partners of the Maine Humanities Council and the Portland Public Library. Everything, everything we do is free and open to the public. I struggled about how best to introduce Noam Chomsky and got the answer earlier this afternoon in the form of an email. It is from Jan Fabian Dolbaum. Is he here tonight? Somewhere probably in the audience. Um, this is what it says. Hello, I would so much like to see Professor Chomsky give a talk once in my life I am from Germany and came all the way from Mexico where I studied politics to Boston. I came from Germany from Mexico where I studied politics to Boston to see him give a talk. I only have three more days in the area. Then I will fly out and not come back for a long time, I think, and hope that I will be allowed to attend the talk tonight in Portland. His secretary just printed out for me the information about the talk and gave me your email address. Can I please come and attend the talk? I will now go to the, main, to the train station and buy a ticket because it's so important for me. I hope I will be let in. Thanks a lot and sorry for the inconvenience and this strange email. <laughs> Bye, Jan Fabian Dolbaum. Jan, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're here tonight. And all who made it tonight, Here's Noam Chomsky. The title for tonight is uh, very well chosen, very topical. Uh, each of the two tendencies uh, in the title is uh, of historical significance. Uh, each is also a work in progress. Uh, complex uh, outcomes are highly uncertain, uh, sure to be uh, of considerable significance for the future and they uh, interact in, in many ways. 
One way in which they interact was illustrated dramatically earlier this year, uh, right in the middle of the uh, uh, huge demonstrations in Madison, Wisconsin, protesting the effort of the government, of the governor to uh, essentially destroy the public service unions. Uh, they received uh, last March they, the demonstrators in uh, Madison occupying the state house, uh, tens of thousands in the streets. Uh, received a message from uh, Kamala Abbas, as a labor activist in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, he was uh, expressing, he was conveying the solidarity of Egyptian workers in Tahrir Square uh, to the people in Madison uh, fighting the same battle. Uh, the Arab Spring, of course, also inspired the uh, quite remarkable Occupy movements that began in Wall Street and uh, have now spread to literally thousands of places in the United States. Uh, the trajectories in Egypt and the United States are intersecting, but uh, moving in opposite directions. So the Arab Spring is an effort to gain rights that had been denied by the and brutal uh, Western-backed dictatorships uh, in the United States. The uh, trajectory is in a different direction. It's an effort to protect rights that had been won in long and hard struggles and are now being dismantled and uh, destroyed. Uh, there's another point of contact which is significant. In both cases, Egypt, all of the Middle East, North Africa, MENA region sometimes called, uh, in both the United States and the MENA region, uh, the, up, the uh, uprisings are a, a reaction to a vigorous assault against the population that's been going on for 30 years uh, worldwide. Uh, it's under the neoliberal banner sometimes called the Washington Consensus, uh, sometimes it's called the IMF, World Bank, World Trade Organization, Unholy Trinity, uh, sometimes called the World Bank, IMF Treasury Complex, all approximately the same thing. And it's had uh, similar results everywhere. Uh, the results have been harsher for the populations uh, where the rules have been more rigorously applied. Uh, Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa are the most striking cases. I'll just keep to Egypt and the U.S. Uh, Tahrir Square is not Zuccotti Park, uh, but uh, uh, the uprisings share many of the same roots. Uh, in Egypt, uh, as is standard, uh, Mubarak's uh, neoliberal programs since the early 80s uh, have created uh, vast wealth in very small sectors and have engendered a huge corruption uh, while severely harming the large majority of the population as inequality soared. Uh, all of this, not surprisingly, been accompanied by uh, increasingly brutal repression of workers and others who sought elementary rights. Uh, virtually up to the moment of the 
outburst of the Arab Spring, the World Bank and the IMF were issuing uh, glowing reports on the remarkable achievements of uh, Egypt's uh, economic and political managers. Uh, that's again a routine practice uh, right before the edifice collapses as it regularly does. Now all of that should be quite familiar here. Uh, Fed, Fed uh, Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan, uh, who was known as St. Alan during his glory days. Uh, he was hailed as one of the greatest economists of all time as he presided over what was claimed to be a miraculous economy in which all fundamental problems had been resolved thanks to the triumph of the market. And also, as he proudly explained to Congress, uh, thanks to what he called growing worker insecurity, which reduces pressures for compensation and decent working conditions, which are plainly worthy, worthy features of a decent uh, ec economy and society. Uh, meanwhile, wealth concentrated in the pockets of a small fraction of 1% of the population, a section so small that the census doesn't even pick it up. You have to detail sophisticated uh, statistical analysis to identify them, roughly a tenth of a percent of the population. It accounts for a substantial part of the enormous inequality in the United States. Uh, and uh, while that was happening for the majority for the past generation, uh, real incomes have largely stagnated, uh, uh, declined. Uh, for African Americans, uh, wealth is now practically zero after the collapse of the housing bubble. Uh, people have tried to get by through increased uh, working hours, uh, by now well beyond other industrial countries, uh, by debt, which is of course unsustainable, and by uh, asset inflation, uh, it's temporary paper wealth that uh, disappears with the collapse of the bubbles. This has been a regular feature of the economy ever since the early Reagan years through the neoliberal years as the uh, New Deal uh, regulatory apparatus uh, collapsed under bipartisan assault. There were no financial crises until the early 80s uh, after the Second World War. Uh, the, uh, and the economy uh, uh, shifted dramatically from the 1970s uh, to uh, financialization and uh, offshoring of production. Well, the basic facts, I think, are probably too familiar to review. Uh, in the United States, the first major popular reaction to this era of uh, what should be called uh, the vicious class war, first major reaction is the Occupy movement uh, that began in New York and have now spread uh, to much of the country, uh, inspired by the dramatic developments in uh, Egypt and other parts of uh, MENA. Well, not surprisingly, all are facing repression. It's of different kinds, of course, depends on the character of the society, but the general tendencies are strikingly similar, just as the global assault of the past generation has been uh, similar in uh, many of its uh, 
fundamental aspects. Uh, in MENA, the outcomes are highly varied and quite uncertain. Uh, the major successes so far have been in Tunisia and uh, Egypt, uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, Joel Bainan, who's the leading American scholar of uh, uh, Arab labor movements, has pointed out that the successes of the Arab Spring are closely correlated to the existence of a, a militant labor movement. Uh, in the case of Egypt, uh, uh, militant labor activism has gone on for many years, uh, usually beaten back by the dictatorship, but gaining some successes. Uh, the uh, uh, April 6th movement that uh, sparked the this is kind of tech-savvy young professionals who you know about who sparked the February uh, occupation in Tahrir Square and the huge movement that followed from it. Uh, they're called the April 6th Movement for a reason. Uh, they formed on April 6th, 2008, uh, at the time of a major uh, uh, set of labor actions at the uh, Mahala Textile a conglomerate, one of the biggest uh, uh, industrial conglomerates in Egypt, elsewhere in the country, uh, popular demonstrations planned. It was mostly crushed by the dictatorship, but survived, and the April 6th movement uh, remains and has continued and uh, uh, did uh, initiate the current uh, Arab Spring in Egypt. The, uh, as soon as when the labor movement joined in, as it shortly did, it really became a, a mass a movement which got rid of the dictator. The uh, reigning system is still in place. The military still rules pretty harshly. Uh, about uh, 12,000 people have been sentenced in military courts. That's actually more than uh, through the entire period of the Mubarak dictatorship and plenty of harsh conflict is going on, but the struggle continues. Now, there have been real victories. Now, one major victory has been for the freedom of speech. The press uh, is much freer than it was uh, before the dictatorship crumbled. Uh, uh, there's, much, there's a lot of open discussion, debate. Uh, uh, the uh, labor movement has continued to be active. Independent labor movements have been formed for the first time. Uh, and uh, strikes continue on crucial issues, and uh, the situation is very much in flux. We don't know where it'll go. Well, in sharp uh, contrast to this, in the United States, uh, the labor movement has been declining under, uh, the same was true in Tunisia, incidentally. Uh, the, uh, uh, in the United States, the labor movement's been under severe attack, it's been declining. Uh, in the private sector, as I'm sure you know, the uh, union organizing is now down to about 7%. Uh, public sector unions have been sustained. Uh, they've been protected by labor laws that were basically violated um, openly since the Reagan years when Reagan pretty much informed uh, employers that they weren't going to apply the laws. And illegal firing of organizers sharply increased, uh, continued through the Clinton years, and of course on under W. Bush. The uh, public sector, however, has maintained itself. It's now under a serious uh, attack, bipartisan attack. Uh, so for example, when 
that President Obama declares a freeze on federal workers. A more accurate description would be a tax rise on federal workers. That amounts to the same thing, but doesn't sound as good that way. Freeze on pay, tax rise for federal workers is the same. And in other ways, the public sector unions are under severe attack, sometimes as in Wisconsin, uh, by efforts to take away basic elementary labor rights, like the rights of collective bargaining. That's happening in many places, even in uh, Massachusetts. The, uh, a couple of days ago, you may have seen, there was an, a, a David Montgomery, one of the major labor historians, died. Uh, uh, one of Montgomery's uh, main works is called uh, The Fall of the House of Labor. Uh, he's actually referring to the 1920s, to the crushing of the labor movement by extremely harsh repression under Woodrow Wilson, his Red Square scare, which almost destroyed a very vibrant uh, labor movement. Well, it uh, arose again in the 1930s uh, with orga organizing the CIO, uh, uh, sit-down strikes, uh, the main impetus, in fact, be behind the New Deal legislations, which significantly changed the country, greatly improved uh, the standards for uh, most of the population. Uh, that continued for some years, but didn't take long for the attack to uh, begin again. And it's uh, uh, culminating in the uh, what I described. Uh, just to mention another book, uh, uh, there's an important book by Jefferson Cowie called uh, The 1970s and the Last Days of the Working Class. He's describing the way in which this great neoliberal assault uh, was taking off in the late 1970s, uh, driven forward by Reagan, Thatcher in England, and carried on right until today. And unless there's again a revival, as there was in the 1930s, uh, the country's in for bad times. Uh, typically, over the long period, uh, an organized labor movement has been in the forefront of uh, social progress, one of the reasons it's under such sharp attack consistently. Well, it's worth remembering that this is not the first time that the trajectories of the United States and Egypt have uh, crossed. Uh, the first time was quite revealing. It was in the early 19th century. Uh, at that time, both Egypt and the United States were well-placed to uh, uh, undertake uh, rapid industrial development, uh, the uh, uh, economic development generally. Uh, both Egypt and the United States had rich agriculture, uh, particularly cotton. Uh, cotton, remember, was essentially the fuel, the oil of the early Industrial Revolution, uh, there was a difference. Uh, unlike Egypt, in the United States, uh, it was necessary to resort to uh, conquest, uh, extermination of the indigenous population, uh, slavery, in order to develop a huge cotton production industry. Not in Egypt, they had a peasant class. Uh, there was one, uh, the consequences of course still resound, uh, one fundamental difference between Egypt and uh, the United States at the time was that the United States had gained independence from England. Egypt hadn't. 
there, therefore, uh, the United States was free to ignore uh, the prescriptions of sound economic theory. Uh, those prescriptions were given to the colonies by no less than Adam Smith in terms that are quite similar to those that are preached by the unholy trinity to uh, developing societies today. Uh, Adam Smith's prescriptions were that the colonies should uh, keep to what was later called comparative advantage, uh, produce primary products, that's what they're good at, for export, import superior British manufacturers, and crucially that the colonies, he warned them not to monopolize, not to try to monopolize the uh, major resources that they, uh, that they uh, possessed, uh, most particularly cotton. Uh, any other path, uh, quote Smith, any other path would retard instead of accelerating the further increase in the value of their annual product and would obstruct instead of promoting the progress of their country towards real wealth and greatness. Uh, those are uh, Smith's words and they're essentially the same uh, prescriptions given to the third world, the so-called developing societies today. Well, having gained their independence, the American colonies were, former colonies were uh, free to uh, ignore the laws of sound economics and they were able to follow England's own path of uh, state-directed industrial development. Uh, that's including uh, high tariffs to uh, keep out uh, uh, superior British uh, e exports to develop first a textile industry, uh, later steel and uh, uh, others, and uh, made use of many other devices of state intervention to accelerate economic development that's pretty uniform through economic history. Uh, the colonies also, the former colonies now independent, uh, sought, did seek to uh, monopolize uh, cotton. Uh, this was done in the 1840s and 50s, the Jacksonian presidents. Uh, the goal was, as Tyler put it, to place, other all, place all other nations at our feet uh, particularly the British enemy. That was the great enemy of the day. Uh, that's part of the motivation, a large part of the motivation for the conquest of Texas and half of Mexico. Uh, it's kind of, it came pretty close to achievement, not total, but very significant. The idea was if the U.S. could monopolize cotton, uh, Britain would not be able to use its deterrent force to prevent uh, U.S. expansion uh, growth. Uh, rather strikingly, this is very similar to the charge to what was charged, uh, though unrealistically, in 1990 uh, against Saddam Hussein. You recall that when Saddam invaded Kuwait, there was a lot of uh, uh, fevered rhetoric about how he was trying to monopolize oil and bring the world to his feet. That was sheer fantasy. Um, just an effort to try to build up support for the invasion. Uh, but in the case of uh, uh, the uh, um, U.S. president, it wasn't uh, fantasy. In fact, it pretty, came pretty close to happening and had big effects. Well, that's the United States, independent, could ignore the economic prescriptions. Uh, what about Egypt? 
Well, in Egypt, uh, which was poised for industrial development, a comparable course was blocked by British power. Uh, Lord Palmerston, essentially foreign secretary, said that uh, no ideas of fairness towards Egypt ought to stand in the way of such great and paramount interests of Britain as preserving its uh, economic and political hegemony, uh, expressed his hate for the ignorant barbarian Muhammad Ali who dared to seek an independent course and deployed Britain's fleet and financial power uh, to terminate uh, Egypt's quest for independence and economic development. France, the other great imperial power, went along. Uh, after World War II, uh, and Egypt became Egypt, not a rising, developing, rich country like the United States, which by the end of the 19th century had the, it was uh, far and away the richest country in the world. Uh, after World War II, the United States replaced Britain as a global hegemonic power, and, it, and Washington adopted essentially the same stand. Uh, made very clear to the Egyptians that Egypt would receive no aid unless Egypt adhered to the standard rules for the weak, uh, essentially Adam Smith's, those of the unholy trinity. Uh, the United States, meanwhile, continued to violate those rules. It imposed high tariffs on to bar Egyptian cotton and uh, other ways caused a severe dollar shortage in Egypt, which uh, prevented Egypt from picking up a process of development after the Second World War. Well, that's actually the usual interpretation of market principles. It's fine for you, but uh, not for me, please. Uh, a couple of years after, in 1958, uh, President Eisenhower uh, discussed with his staff a disturbing phenomenon, what he called a campaign of hatred against us in the Arab world, uh, not among the not not the governments, they're okay, uh, but among the people. And in the same year, 1958, the National Security Council, the main planning agency, uh, produced a study uh, directed to this campaign of hatred. And it explained that uh, there's a perception in the Arab world that the United States supports uh, harsh and brutal uh, regimes and blocks uh, economic and democratic development, and that we do so because we want to maintain control of their uh, energy resources. And I went on to say that this perception is more or less accurate, and furthermore, that's uh, pretty much what we ought to be doing, echoing Lord Palmerston. Uh, so it's, uh, and it's small wonder in the face of the policies that I've just described. Uh, you'll recall, I'm sure, that uh, after 9-11, uh, George W. Bush uh, issued a plaintive uh, uh, request, uh, demand, plea, asking uh, uh, why do they hate us? And he said, well, they hate us because of our freedom and because we're so magnificent and so on. Uh, the Pentagon actually uh, 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 commissioned right at that time a study by the Defense Science Board as to why do they hate us. And its conclusions, not too surprisingly, were exactly the same as those of the National Security Council in 1958. Uh, they hate us because uh, we support 
dictatorships, we block democracy and development, and we do it because uh, we want to make sure we control, control their energy uh, supplies. Nothing much has changed. Well, going back to Adam Smith, uh, in his defense, he recognized something that is highly pertinent today. He recognized what would happen, to, he, he discussed what would happen to Britain, it's his topic, of course, what would happen to Britain if it adhered to the rules of sound economics? So suppose he thought what's now called neoliberalism. Uh, so suppose he said that the, the merchants and manufacturers in England uh, decided that they could make more profit if they invested abroad, produced abroad, uh, and imported from abroad. And he concluded that they would profit, but England would suffer. Uh, in case that sounds familiar, it is. They would profit, England would suffer. But he said he didn't think this was going to happen uh, because they would be guided by uh, what's sometimes called home bias, uh, just a commitment to your own country. So they'd prefer to invest in England and uh, get, their, uh, get their goods from England because uh, uh, they'd have a commitment to the country and this would be better for them. Uh, so therefore, he said, as if by an invisible hand, uh, England will be saved from the, the ravages of uh, uh, markets, global market systems, global neoliberalism in today's words. Uh, that's a passage in Wealth of Nations, this famous book, that's pretty hard to miss. In fact, it's the only occurrence of the phrase, famous phrase, invisible hand in Wealth of Nations, in what amounts to a critique of what we call uh, global neoliberalism. Uh, his, uh, the second major uh, figure in classical economics, David Ricardo, uh, had the same perception, in fact. He said he, would, he hoped that uh, home bias would lead men of property to be satisfied, I'm quoting him, to be satisfied with the low rate of profit in their own country rather than to seek a more advantageous employment for their wealth in foreign nations. And he said that these are feelings that uh, I should be sorry to see weakened. He recognized if they were weakened, England would suffer, though it's uh, the masters of England would, would uh, uh, gain. And the instincts of the classical economists were sound uh, in the United States and not here alone. We're essentially living in a nightmare that they predicted, uh, producing offshore, very profitable for the, say, you know, the owners of Apple and Dell and many others, uh, very harmful to the uh, uh, American population, uh, and uh, shifting the economy from production of useful goods that you do abroad rotten labor conditions, uh, no environmental constraints, high profits, shifting from that to financial manipulations. The financialization of the economy has grown extraordinarily since this began in the late 70s. And the consequences are about what you'd expect. Uh, in fact, exactly pretty much what the classical economists expected. Well, let's take a look at the American winter, the other half of the title. Uh, the current issue of uh, the major establishment 
International Relations Journal, the Journal of Foreign Affairs of the Council on Foreign Relations Quarterly. Its current issue has big on the front cover, uh, rate asks the question, is America over? Uh, they're referring to the theme of American decline, as it's called, very standard theme now of uh, scholar, political science, international relations scholarship, and also public discussion, uh, American decline. So they're asking, is America over? And there's a corollary to this common theme, namely that power is shifting, continuing its long shift uh, from uh, east to west. So from uh, 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 the east in the 17th and 18th century to Northwest Europe, then across the Atlantic to the United States, and now across the Pacific to the uh, rising economic giants, uh, uh, especially China. Uh, the, uh, that's the kind of corollary. Well, uh, there's something true about the thesis, American decline, I'll come to it. The corollary is extremely dubious. Uh, China is a very poor country. Uh, India, much more so. Uh, China has a spectacular growth, but its economy is mainly as an assembly plant. Uh, the it, parts and components and high technology um, uh, mostly come from the surrounding industrial societies, Japan, uh, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, all of which have uh, favorable, quite favorable trade balances with China. Uh, the products are assembled in China, not much value added, and uh, shipped off to, you know, to, for you to buy in a mall. Uh, the, uh, China will sure, surely sooner or later move up the technology ladder, but it's not an easy climb. In fact, when you calculate trade deficits accurately, US, famous US-China trade deficit, if you recalculate it in terms of value added, which is the right way, uh, it turns out that the trade deficit with China goes down by about 25%, and uh, the trade deficit with the peripheral industrial countries goes up by, by about the same amount. Uh, there's much discussion in the last couple of days about the uh, conference, the international conference in Durban about uh, global warming, and the standard description is that uh, the United States and China are the main uh, uh, are responsible for most of the emissions. Actually, China's passed the United States. Uh, that's a little misleading in a number of ways. Uh, one way, of, uh, for obvious reasons, is just per capita emissions, which are far higher in the United States. The other is that the emissions in China, to a large extent, are traceable to uh, wealthy Western industrial societies, West including the periphery of China, the Western industrial societies uh, who are uh, shifting their production uh, to places like uh, Foxconn, where they make Apple uh, appliances under absolutely horrifying conditions uh, and produce emissions, which are then called uh, emissions of China, which should be traceable to the West, uh, including the surrounding societies. The China, and even more so India, uh, have enormous internal problems, uh, far worse than anything that the uh, rich countries face. Uh, the, uh, 
they are, there has been spectacular growth, but uh, enormous problems ahead, demographic and others, and there doesn't really seem to be any uh, likelihood that anywhere in the foreseeable future there'll be, China will be a, an alternative global power anywhere near comparable to the United States. Well, uh, nevertheless, the decline of the United States is quite real, and there are a few things that should be borne in mind about it. Uh, one is that the decline is to a substantial extent self-inflicted. Uh, this has to do with the changes in the economy uh, that have been designed by the people who dominate the society, small sector of power that dominates it, and designed very consciously uh, in the manner that I described. Uh, shifting the economy radically towards uh, financialization and uh, uh, production of useful goods offshore, uh, the Smith-Ricardo uh, nightmare. Uh, that has consequences. It sets off a vicious cycle. It leads to sharp concentration of wealth. Uh, concentrated wealth yields concentration of political power. Uh, that leads to legislation. Uh, fiscal measures, taxation, rules of corporate governance, uh, deregulation, others, which accelerate the cycle, and you end up uh, with where we are now. Uh, meanwhile, parallel to this, the costs of elections have uh, gone sky high. Uh, the next election is just going to break, wildly break all records. Uh, many billions of dollars are already far more has already been spent than in past elections. Uh, that has a consequence. It means that the political organizations are driven uh, into the pockets of the concentrations of wealth, increasingly the financial institutions, a parallel process discussed mainly by political economist uh, Thomas Ferguson, is that the, the, par the, the, the parties in Congress are increasingly uh, ceasing to become to be traditional political parties. Republicans, sorry, several decades by now. Democrats, the Democrats who are now what used to be called moderate Republicans, uh, that's they're not far behind. Uh, one of the ways in which this is illustrated is in uh, positions of influence within Congress. So, say a committee chair. Now, these used to be given by. Uh, on the basis of seniority and uh, service, some sort of public service, uh, for a long time among the Republicans and now increasingly the Democrats, uh, those positions are basically bought. You have to put money into the party coffers, which drives the members of Congress in the same direction. So you get uh, kind of a very narrow uh, uh, oligarchy uh, uh, along with the economic crisis. This has many consequences in the country. It's led to a high degree of uh, anger, of uh, fear, frustration. Uh, it's a pretty dangerous mix. Uh, the Occupy movements are a response to it, the first constructive response to it, but I think it's very much in the balance and could be very dangerous. Well, a second fact about American decline is that it's, it may be in the headlines now, but it's been going on for a long time. The peak of American power was reached in 1945, the end of the Second World War. 
the Second World War was, the, the, the US had entered the war by far the richest country in the world. In fact, it was half a century earlier. Uh, the war was very beneficial to the American economy. It ended the depression, industrial production zoomed, practically quadrupled. Uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, other industrial countries were devastated or severely weakened. Uh, by the end of the war, uh, the United States had a position of power without any historical precedent. It literally had half the world's wealth, a position of overwhelming security, uh, controlling the Western Hemisphere, uh, both oceans, opposite sides of both oceans. Uh, the planners of the Roosevelt administration during the war uh, recognized that this was happening and knew that the war was going to end with the United States in a position of simply overwhelming power. They developed plans to deal with the situation. Uh, the plans were later implemented. Uh, the plans, the basic plan was that the United States should uh, dominate, control, essentially control, of course, all the Western Hemisphere, it's taken for granted, the in, entire Far East and the former British Empire, including, crucially, its uh, Middle East energy resources and as much of uh, Eurasia as possible. Surely the uh, most significant industrial and commercial parts in Western Europe. Well, that's the minimum. The maximum is everything. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Middle East oil reserves were recognized to be of extreme significance. Uh, 1940s, they were described by high officials as a stupendous source of strategic power, uh, greatest material prize in world history. Uh, President Eisenhower called them the most strategically important part of the world. Uh, uh, if it was recognized that if we control the Middle East, we can control the world for this reason. Well, uh, that was 1945. Uh, but it started to decline very quickly. Uh, one major uh, blow to these uh, plans was uh, just a few years later, in 1949, when China became independent. Now, there's a name for that event in American political history. It's called the loss of China. That's a very interesting phrase if you think about it. Uh, I can't lose your computer, right? I can only lose something I own. But it's simply taken for granted that we possess China. So therefore, if it became independent, we've lost it. And therefore, a uniform description of this from the late 40s till today, major theme in American politics, is the loss of China and what that means. It tells us a lot about our own culture and understanding. Uh, by 1950, a year later, there were serious concerns about the loss of Southeast Asia, partially Indochina, but much more significant was the threat to the possibility of losing Indonesia, which had major resources. Long, interesting history after that. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the Vietnam War was largely fought uh, to prevent this, all of this from happening. Uh, the conception which runs right through the Second World, the post-war period all over the world, uh, is uh, that you've got to be careful about what were sometimes called viruses that might spread contagion. Uh, 
uh, domino that would topple other dominoes. Uh, the virus was the threat of successful independent development, which could appeal to others to try to pursue the same course. Pretty soon you have contagion spreading and the system of domination begins to erode. Now that's essentially what the Vietnam War was about. How do you deal with the virus that's spreading contagion? Well, you destroy the virus and you inoculate potential victims from uh, contagion. Destroying the virus means invasion, bombing, destruction, uh, military coups and so on. Uh, pre preventing contagion uh, means uh, imposing military dictatorships which will control the population. That's what was done in Southeast Asia, uh, all throughout the region, and not only there. Uh, by the early 1950s, uh, the threat of loss was beginning closer to home. Uh, Guatemala had its first democratic government overthrew a dictatorship. Uh, the Eisenhower administration was deeply concerned that that would be another virus that would spread infection. Uh, the Guatemalan, there was a, a mili military, U.S. carried out a military coup in Guatemala, installed a a brutal, vicious, murderous regime. It's still, it's still one of the horror stories of the Western Hemisphere years later. Uh, this went on over and over. The most striking and instructive case was Cuba. Cuba had been, in effect, an American colony. In 1959, it gained its independence for the first time. Uh, very quickly, uh, Washington began to make plans to overthrow the government. Uh, bombing started a couple of months later when John F. Kennedy came over, came in next year. It was escalated to get the Bay of Pigs invasion. When that failed, uh, enormous uh, terrorist operation run by Robert Kennedy, his, his uh, biographer, Arthur Schlesinger, a historian who was Kennedy's Latin American advisor. He writes that uh, in the biography that Robert Kennedy's task, the task given to him, was to bring the terrors of the earth to Cuba. And in fact, that was his prime responsibility. It was quite an ugly development. It almost led to a nuclear war, and the missile crisis went on again right after that. Uh, there was a harsh embargo. Uh, the purpose was to uh, destroy the virus, or at least constrain it. And it was very explicit. Uh, the uh, the CIA uh, warned that the major threat of Cuba was its successful defiance of the Monroe Doctrine 150 years earlier, which had declared the American goal of uh, dominating the hemisphere couldn't be implemented at the time because of British power. Uh, Kennedy himself, as he came into office, intended to uh, devote attention to Latin America. He had a Latin American mission, which was in fact, headed by Arthur Schlesinger. Schlesinger's report to the president did, of course, discuss the problem of Cuba. He said the problem of Cuba is the uh, spread of the Castro idea of taking matters into your own hands, which might influence others in uh, surrounding countries which, where people face the same problems. So you have a virus and it might spread contagion. And the methods that were used were the standard ones. An effort to destroy the Cuban virus, there was a 
a plague of repression was set off all through Latin America, beginning with a military coup in Brazil and spreading through the continent, uh, reached Central America in the 1980s. Uh, worst plague of repression in Latin American history, which did uh, prevent contagion, while the virus, while not totally destroyed, was uh, contained, and it was serious. Uh, it's understood by scholarship, at least. So if you take a look at the latest uh, Cambridge University History of the Cold War. There's an article by a leading American, Latin American scholar, John Coatsworth. He points out that, quoting him, from the Kennedy years to the Soviet collapse in 1990, the numbers of political prisoners, torture victims, uh, executions of nonviolent political dissenters in Latin America vastly exceeded those in the Soviet Union and its East European satellites, all backed by Washington, often initiated by it. That included many religious martyrs and mass slaughter. The final bloody event, just shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall, was the assassination of six leading Latin American intellectuals, Jesuit priests in El Salvador. They were murdered on the orders of the high command, by, which was in close contact with the US. Uh, they were murdered by an elite Salvadoran battalion, which already had a bloody uh, history of uh, massacres and destruction. Uh, they had just been, they were just returning from refresher courses at the John F. Kennedy School of Special Warfare in North Carolina, uh, murdered on command. The, Jesuits and also their housekeeper and daughter, so there wouldn't be anyone to report it. It's denied for a long time. The facts have trickled out since. And it's kind of symbolic of what happened as the contagion was, uh, uh, was uh, constrained. Well, all of this is out of history uh, because uh, no country, uh, it's hard to find any society which looks at its own crimes. You lament the crimes of others, but not your own, those you suppress. Uh, well, the decline continued. Uh, the industrial countries reconstructed from the Second World War. Uh, decolonization uh, began to take place. Uh, by 1970, the world was economically what was called tripolar. Three major uh, economic centers, uh, North America, based in the United States, uh, uh, Europe, comparable economy, based primarily in Germany, and uh, the dynamic growing region of East Asia at that point, uh, uh, Japan-centered, later, later Japan-China-centered, and the other industrial countries. By then, the U.S. share of world wealth had declined from 50% to 25%, which is still extraordinary, but not 50%, then it remains roughly at that level today. Uh, then, uh, won't run through everything, but in the last decade, there's been a very significant development. Uh, Latin America broke away, especially South America, uh, broke away and moved towards independence for the first time in 500 years. Uh, one also began to move towards addressing its uh, horrifying internal economic problems. Very rich region, but uh, to every country after country ruled by tiny elite 
westernized, often white, uh, in a sea of misery. That's changing country by country. They've also thrown out every U.S. military base. The U.S. is no longer able to carry out regular coups in South America, Central America, they still can, weaker societies, but not uh, South America. Uh, the, uh, just a, a couple of days ago, this, uh, a, new, a new organization was formed, uh, CELAC, which is the, includes the, all the countries of Latin America and the Caribbean, except for the United States and Canada. Uh, that would have been unheard of uh, in earlier years. It could become a substitute to the US-dominated Organization of American States, uh, so that'll be the, it already is recognized as the loss of, of South America, considered the backyard. Well, this last year it's shifted to MENA. Uh, could be the loss of, uh, of the MENA countries, Middle East, North Africa, uh, which is much more dangerous than loss of South America because of the uh, understanding of the enormous significance of the resources of that region. Well, the U.S. reaction has been the expected one. Uh, for the United States and its allies, its Western European allies, uh, the worst threat in the MENA region is uh, democratization. Of course, everybody talks about how they love democracy, but the Western countries will do anything they can to prevent it for very simple reasons. If you want to know why, just take a look at polls. There are extensive, careful, Western-run, U.S.-run polls of the Arab world, and they're revealing. They're not reported, but planners certainly know them. Uh, right on the eve of the Arab Spring, about a year ago, uh, polls showed, just take, say, Egypt, the most important country, that for 90% of the population, the greatest threat they perceived was the United States and Israel. Uh, opposition to U.S. policy was so strong that about 80% of the population thought the region would be more secure if Iran had nuclear weapons. They don't like Iran, and they don't want it to have nuclear weapons, but to balance what they see as the major threat, they felt that would make the region more secure. Uh, maybe 10% regarded Iran as a threat. Uh, figures are somewhat similar throughout the region. Uh, obviously, the United States and Western Europe, France and uh, Britain don't want those attitudes expressed in policy. But if you, insofar as you move towards functioning democracy, uh, you have public opinion expressed in policy. That's what democracy means. And in fact, even the early steps very partial steps in democratization in Egypt have already had effects that the U.S. and its allies regard as extremely threatening. So Egypt uh, uh, opened up uh, transit to, in the Suez Canal to Iranian ships for the first time, uh, including military vessels, which they don't threaten the U.S. Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean, but the Mediterranean is supposed to be an American lake Nobody else is allowed in there, certainly not Iran. Uh, the, uh, uh, Egypt has moved to, uh, has attempted to bring about reconciliation of the two major Palestinian factions, 
Hamas in the Gaza Strip, uh, Palestine Fatah in the West Bank. Uh, the U.S. and Israel have been trying, for, have been working very hard for 20 years now to separate Gaza from the West Bank, to break them apart for very, in violation of the Oslo Accords, but nobody cares about that. And the reason is straightforward. Uh, if there's ever any kind of independence for some sort of fragment of the West Bank, uh, if they're separated from Gaza, they're imprisoned. They have no access to the outside world. Just take a look at a map and you'll see it. They're imprisoned between the Jordanian dictatorship and Israel. Gaza is the outlet, so you gotta separate them. Uh, despite the fact that the Oslo Accord says that they're a territorial integrity which can't be separate, separated. This has been going on for 20 years. And the effort to bring them together, whether it will succeed or not, we don't know, is itself very threatening. There's also concern that uh, Egypt might be, might be compelled by popular opinion to revise the 1979 Israel-Egypt Treaty not really to revise it, but to revise its interpretation. Uh, Egypt immediately interpreted the treaty, as did Israel and the United States, as essentially a license to Israel to do anything it wants. Uh, the Egyptian deterrent is removed. Israel is therefore free to invade its northern neighbor, Lebanon, as it did almost immediately, and to extend its uh, colonization of the occupied territories. That was understood explicitly by uh, uh, Israeli strategists. Egypt, Egyptian dictatorships agreed. Population didn't like it. And they are already making threats to revise that interpretation. And Israel knows it. Well, that's what's happening. That's in the background. If you look at the actual policies the US has followed to the Arab Spring, it works out pretty much this way, as you'd expect. So in the first place, the oil dictatorships, the really important parts, uh, they are given carte blanche to do anything they like. So there's no Arab Spring in Saudi Arabia, uh, the most extreme radical fundamentalist state, the major US ally and the, the sort of place where most of the oil is. And there was an effort, weak effort, to have demonstrations, you know, Arab Spring type demonstrations in. Uh, Saudi Arabia, but the police presence, security presence was so enormous that people were afraid to go out in the streets of Riyadh. Nothing happened. They're pretty much the same in Kuwait. Uh, and Bahrain is an interesting case. It's not, doesn't produce a lot of oil, but it's significant. It's, uh, as you know, I'm sure there's been a very harsh repression in Bahrain, and in fact, there was a Saudi-led invasion to ensure that the demonstrations would be crushed, they were pretty brutally, uh, with a kind of tap on the wrist by the Western US and its allies. Uh, the reason is uh, Bahrain is about 70% Shiite. It's right across the causeway from Eastern Saudi Arabia, which is largely Shiite, and which happens to be where most of Saudi, Saudi oil is. And there's been a real concern by Western planners for a long time uh, that uh, there could develop a kind of a tacit Shiite alliance, the dictatorships are Sunni, a tacit Shiite alliance of Eastern Saudi Arabia, Southern Iraq, and Western Iran, right around the northern part of the, of the, of the Gulf, uh, which happens to have the major concentration of energy reserves in the world. 
that would be a nightmare. So that's anything, do anything to let that happen. Bahrain's also the home base of the U.S. Fifth Fleet, the major military force in the region. So that's all pretty predictable. Uh, the second major category is the non-oil dictatorships, like, say, Egypt, Tunisia. Uh, what's been followed there is a very standard game plan. It's applied over and over again. There's case after case where it's become impossible to support your favorite dictator, uh, usually because the army turns against him or something like that, uh, or it just gets overthrown. Uh, Somoza, Marcos in the Philippines, Hachun uh, in South Korea, uh, Suharto in Indonesia, Mobutu in the Congo, Ceausescu in Romania, uh, one after another of the West's favorite dictators have gotten to a point where they just can't be sustained. Well, the game plan in those cases is to support them as long as possible, no matter what kind of atrocities they're carrying out, if they can't be sustained, uh, send them off somewhere uh, and issue ringing declarations about your love of democracy and then try to restore the old system as much as possible. And that's pretty much what's happening in the non-oil dictatorships in Egypt, for example, pretty much as expected. Uh, other cases are varied. There's one major case that diff looks different, that's Libya. Uh, in Libya, the Western powers were pretty strongly supporting Gaddafi uh, right up to the Arab Spring um, weeks before. Uh, interesting story in itself, I won't go into it. But it was recognized that it would be better to uh, replace uh, an unpredictable uh, kind of erratic figure by a more reliable regime. Uh, in Libya, as distinct from the other countries, there was direct military intervention, actually two interventions. The first one, which lasted about five minutes, was under the authority of the United Nations. The UN did pass a resolution uh, calling for a no-fly zone and protection of civilians. Well, okay, that was used as the pretext for bombing, uh, but it was immediately d disregarded by the three traditional imperial powers, uh, Britain and France in front, the United States backing them. Uh, they immediately turned to a different intervention, in no relation to the UN resolution, uh, simply joining the side of the rebels to overthrow the government. Uh, that, uh, uh, it's, uh, th uh, there were, uh, 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 th it should be recognized that this second intervention is very isolated in world opinion, had very little, virtually no support, uh, and alternatives were proposed right away, even before the first UN resolution. Now, they were proposed by the uh, uh, International Crisis Group, that's the main neutral body that all over the world uh, monitors such matters, with a lot of expertise. They presented alternatives, uh, uh, the so-called BRICS countries, rising industrial powers, Britain, Russia, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, the African Union, it's an African country. Uh, they all uh, made Turkey, basically all made the same proposals, uh, namely that there should be a ceasefire as called for in the UN resolution and uh, moves towards negotiation and diplomacies. 
to see if it would be possible to head off, head off a uh, serious humanitarian crisis, which in, in fact took place if you look at the developments, uh, particularly at the last month in Sirt, the happens to be the home base of the largest tribe in Libya, the tribal society was a monstrosity. So the imperial triumvirate was almost alone. Uh, particularly interesting was the African Union. Now since Africa is completely, African opinion is completely ignored in the West, it's worth quoting uh, what they said. I'm quoting from a, a leading journal in India where it was reported. Uh, the African Union, I'm quoting it, called for dialogue even before the UN resolutions that authorized intervention and after those resolutions. Ignoring the African Union for three months and going on with the bombing of the sacred land of Africa has been high-handed, arrogant, and provocative. An attack on Libya or any other member of the African Union without express agreement by the African Union is a dangerous provocation. Uh, sovereignty has been a tool of emancipation of the peoples of Africa who are beginning to chart transformational paths for most of the African countries after centuries of predation by the slave trade, colonialism, and neocolonialism. Uh, careful assaults on the sovereignty of, careless assaults on the sovereignty of African countries are therefore tantamount to inflicting fresh wounds on the destiny of the African peoples. Well, you can understand when none of that gets reported in the United States or the West, but we ought to know about it. Uh, it's also, there's a background to this. Uh, Gaddafi was the major backer of the African National Congress, Mandela's ANC, uh, right at the time when the United States was supporting the apartheid regime in its war against the ANC. That went on right through the Reagan years, late 80s. In 1988, uh, the Reagan administration declared the African National Congress to be one of the more notorious terrorist groups in the world, uh, so therefore supported South Africa, by that time was even violating congressional sanctions. Uh, may not be remembered here, but it's understood by the victims. Uh, in fact, Nelson Mandela himself uh, just was removed from the terrorist list about two years ago. Uh, he can now come to the United States without special dispensation. Well, such things are of no interest to the powerful, but they're not so quickly forgotten by the victims. Uh, in uh, Libya itself, there are many prizes for the triumvirate, the imperial triumvirate. One major one is that the invasion, uh, the, uh, the intervention, uh, removed a Chinese com competition. Uh, there were about several dozen, maybe 75 Chinese companies working in Libya, 35,000 personnel. Uh, mostly they were working in infrastructure development uh, projects. Well, they were evicted. Uh, that's part of a much larger struggle uh, over African resources. Uh, uh, Libyan resources are quite significant. Libyan oil is very important. It's light oil, very easily refined. It's, Libya's right next to Europe, you know, no pipelines and so on. Uh, uh, and uh, there, uh, the Transitional National Council, the new government has made very clear they're going to give priority to the imperial triumvirate, primarily France and Britain, 
actually the French press had an interesting article. I don't know if they intended the irony or not. Uh, the article was called Total Victory in Libya. And among other things, it cited the fact that the new government promised 35% of the Libyan confession, concession to the French oil company, which is called Total. So it's a total victory. Uh, maybe they meant that, maybe they didn't. Uh, another major resource in Libya, which isn't discussed much, is water. Uh, Libya has huge underground water resources. Uh, there had been incipient efforts to try to use them for the very arid regions to the south. Uh, they are mainly controlled by French oil companies now, uh, French oil co uh, water companies, which are the main international water companies. That's a very significant resource for the future. Uh, another major significant uh, act of uh, development of major significance has to do with AFRICOM. That's the uh, new US uh, Africa Command. It, uh, when Gaddafi took over in 1969, he kicked the United States out of its major uh, base, Wheelis Air Base. The AFRICOM has no base in Africa. They're looking for a base. Very likely we'll get one in uh, Libya that's part of the recolonization that the African Union is warning about. Uh, uh, right now they're in Stuttgart in Germany. Uh, as you probably saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, Obama sent uh, small military forces to Uganda under a pretext that makes no sense at all to combat the Lord's Resistance Army, which has been a murderous force for years now on its last legs. Uh, but uh, it's generally speculated that those forces are really aimed at South Sudan, uh, which has plenty of oil, newly, uh, newly liberated, uh, a lot of competition again with China. Uh, well, all of this is part of the race for African resources. Uh, there is one more case in the Arab Spring. There are a couple of others, but another major case is the countries that are still under military occupation, foreign occupation. There are two. Uh, the first, where actually the Arab Spring began about a year ago, is Western Sahara. Uh, Western Sahara is the last colony. It's a technically a colony under UN, UN uh, supervision. Uh, it uh, was supposed to receive independence in 1975. It was invaded by Morocco. Uh, Morocco uh, sent, uh, has been sending a large number of people into the Western Sahara to try to dominate the Sahrawi population. There's a long history that I won't run through. Uh, Morocco is basically a kind of a French dependency. The French have been intervening regularly to prevent the United Nations from responding to Moroccan crimes and atrocities, actually transshipment of populations itself, a major crime, war crime in fact. But, uh, uh, and last November there was, there were protests, there have been many protests, there were more last November, uh, tent cities and so on. They were very quickly crushed by the Moroccans. There were efforts to bring it to the Security Council, France intervened to block it, the US backed them, and that's kind of nobody pays attention. But that's before what happened in Tunis a couple of weeks later, before Egypt. That's one case. Uh, second case, of course, is Palestine. Uh, Palestine remains under foreign occupation. 
the, as you know, the Palestinian Authority approached the United Nations to try to uh, gain admission as a state to the United Nations. Uh, public opinion around the world is highly supportive of this. In Egypt, uh, 90%. In Europe, it's about two to one. Uh, even in the United States, pretty amazingly, almost a half the population supports the Palestinian statehood bid. That's pretty remarkable when you look at uh, media coverage, uh, Congress and so on, which treats this as utter anathema. If there was any open discussion possible, those figures would surely be much higher. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, White House and Congress quickly moved to punish both the Palestinians and the United Nations for daring to think about this. Uh, uh, Palestine was admitted to UNESCO. The United States immediately defunded it. Uh, the United States is defunding Congress and pass, has legislation to defund the Palestinian administration if they dare to do anything like this. Israel did the same. Uh, they reacted to the UN bid by immediately uh, 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 initiating new settlements in what they call Jerusalem. It's a huge area, much bigger than traditional Jerusalem, which uh, Israel annexed. The settlements between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, which kind of close the circle and prevent uh, any contact between them, should be mentioned that the settlements themselves are all illegal. There's no question about that. Every international authority has made it very clear. And the settlements in Jerusalem are doubly illegal because they're not only like all the others, but uh, they're also in violation of explicit Security Council uh, demands. Uh, but it goes on. Uh, Israel also, for a time, uh, withheld uh, customs and uh, taxes that it's legally obliged, obliged to provide. But all of this is punishment to the Palestinians for seeking to break out of the system which guarantees that nothing will ever happen. Well, there are lots of, I'll finish with this, there are plenty of hard problems in the world. So if you try to think of a possible solution for problems like, say, Kashmir or Eastern Congo, worst monstrosities in the world, it's not so simple. Uh, Palestine and Israel is quite different. There's a very simple solution. There's overwhelming agreement on it, and there has been for 35 years. Uh, the first formulation of it, official formulation, at the, at the United Nations was uh, an, a, a, a proposal in 1976 uh, brought by the major Arab states, uh, Jordan, Egypt, and Syria, to the Security Council, calling for what is now just an overwhelming international consensus a two-state settlement on the international border with guarantees for the uh, uh, right of every state in the region to exist in peace and security within secure and recognized borders. That's the basic wording of UN 242, which everyone recognizes to be the basic document. That would include Israel and a new Palestinian state in the territories that Israel was occupying. Uh, well, that was vetoed by the United States. Uh, similar resolution vetoed in 1980. Uh, won't run through the rest of the history, but it continues that way. Uh, U.S. and Israel virtually alone in blocking this continues to the present. 
uh, last uh, February, the, actually the US veto last February did receive some attention because it was so outlandish. Obama vetoed a Security Council resolution calling for implementation of official US policy. Official US policy, you know, in words at least, is that Israel shouldn't expand its settlement. That's the least of the problem. It's the settlements that are criminal. But uh, uh, the US vetoed even that one. That caused some flurry of attention. Uh, the last, uh, uh, last couple of weeks at the, at the United Nations, the, uh, Obama has simply been ridiculed. I mean, if you look at the international commentary, it's like a joke. Uh, in, in Israel, for example, after Obama's speech to the General Assembly, a uh, high Israeli diplomat said that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to have to rewrite his speech because Obama already gave it to him for him, which is approximately true. The, uh, uh, the U.S. and Israel, you read the press, it says, they say the U.S. and Israel are calling for negotiations without preconditions. Uh, Palestinians are insisting on preconditions. Truth is exactly the opposite. Uh, the U.S. and Israel insist on strict preconditions crucial ones designed to ensure that nothing will happen. The first precondition is that the negotiations have to be run by the United States. Well, you know, if there were, if there were real negotiations going on, they'd be run by some neutral party that has some international respect, that may be Brazil. And the two sides would be the US and Israel on one side and the rest of the world on the other side. That's the way it's been lined up pretty much for 35 years. But the U.S. is not going to abandon its control over this crucial region to anybody, no matter what votes there are in the U.N. or anywhere else. So first precondition, the U.S. has to run it, which pretty much guarantees that nothing will happen. The second precondition is that Israel must be free to expand settlements. That's not even questioned anymore. I mean, the U.S. occasionally makes a couple of words about it, but then says, basically, go ahead. Well, a uh, th uh, third precondition is that Israel's already announced what it's going to annex, illegally, of course. Well, obviously, under those conditions, negotiations will get nowhere. Uh, that's why uh, the Palestinians made a maybe desperate effort to try to get around this system to the United Nations. You can argue about whether it was a wise move or not, but it's understandable. Uh, as things now stand, uh, there are several options. What's usually, the usual description, which I think is highly misleading, is this. There'll either be a two-state settlement in terms of the international consensus, or else Israel will take over all the territories, and the Palestinians can wage a civil rights struggle, like an anti-apartheid struggle. And in fact, many Palestinian activists and even Palestinian leaders and are advocating that at this time. But that's very misleading. That's not the second option. It's not an option at all. Uh, Israel will never accept it, and the US will never accept it. And they're the ones that matter. Uh, the other option is that the US and Israel will continue doing exactly what they're doing. Uh, what they're doing is implementing policies, basically what was called the Sharon Plan. Uh, Israel takes over the parts of the territories that are of value to it, uh, leaves the rest kind of cantonized, what Ariel Sharon called Bantustans, uh, 
uh, separated from Gaza, which will remain under siege. Uh, and uh, the, the rest of the Palestinians can just rot. Uh, they don't take any, have no, they don't, they don't want them to, they don't want to introduce them under Israeli jurisdiction. They'll just be off in the hill somewhere or they'll leave, which many of the, uh, say the Christian communities and others are just doing. Uh, and that'll continue, that's the second option. So it's either some version of a two-state settlement and the basic outlines of that have been clear for years or else this. Well, is there a solution to all of this? Yeah, there's a very simple one. U.S. policy has to change. Uh, already a majority of the population, uh, a majority of the population supports it. We're now back to the American decline that I was talking about. There's a growing gap between the public will and public policy on a huge number of issues. I mean, there's always a gap, but by now it's kind of a chasm. Uh, this is one case, and unless there is uh, some process of real democratization in the United States towards a functioning democracy where public opinion has something to do with policy, uh, everything's gonna be in deep trouble, and this in particular. And in a way, as far as Israel's Palestine is concerned, I think that's pretty, optimistic conclusion. It means the easy, well-understood solution is within reach, and it's furthermore within our control to bring it about. Thanks. We have about four questions. Where are you? Are they going to come this way and they're going to ask them? I don't see you. Where are the... Oh, you're coming up here. I see. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Um, my name is Dan. I'm a junior at the uh, University of New England in the political science program. And uh, my question today is, do you believe that the states involved at the Arab Spring will experience a period of modernization after stable governments are established? And if so, what changes can we expect? Well, as I've pointed out, for close to 200 years, uh, uh, almost 200 years, the, uh, the United States and Britain have been trying to, first Britain and the United States, have been trying to prevent modernization in MENA, Egypt, and I mentioned Egypt, but it's all over the region. At first it was Britain since the early 19th century, then U.S. took over after 1945 when it displaced England. I read you a few things from the internal record. Now that continues. Uh, the same happened in South America. First, it was mostly European influence, then U.S. influence in the last century, and for pretty good understandable reasons, the ones that the National Security Council spelled out. So will it take place? To a certain extent, it's up to us. I mean, first, this question for them. Can they succeed in overthrowing dictatorial regimes? the way that was finally done pretty much in Latin America and South America at least, and move on uh, on their own. Well, that's, can they do it? Second is, will we let them do it? Uh, very significant question. The imperial triumvirate is quite powerful. Uh, it's been at this for centuries, uh, shifting from 
Britain and France to the US, but Britain and France still very active. Uh, will we allow our own states to act to prevent democracy and development? Well, the answer to your question is those two questions. Some of it's not in our hands, uh, some of it is in our hands, part that we should be mostly concerned about. But I don't think anyone can predict. Uh, it's taking various forms in different uh, MENA countries, uh, roughly along the lines that I outlined. There's uh, very uncertain prospects. There's certain to be a lot of conflict and uh, uh, controversy. And what we do is going to have a substantial impact on it. Hi, my name is Eddie, and I'm uh, from uh, UNE College of Pharmacy. Uh, my question is, in your book, you talk a lot about the, uh, uh, the first, I mean, the second uh, conflict in Iraq and how we're occupying it right now, and you don't approve of it. Uh, what do you think? Do you think the uh, initial invasion of uh, Iraq in the early 90s, the first conflict, was justified? Well, the first, uh, the, the second conflict it was just an out, outright aggression. It was just, you know, it was, called, it was what was called in the Nuremberg Tribunal the supreme international crime, which include, differs from other war crimes in that it includes all the evil that follows. That's the second invasion. I don't see what there is to discuss about that, the total horror story. The first invasion is more controversial. Uh, but, uh, and, and it's kind of interesting to look at. If you're interested, I've gone into the details, including the internal record, and uh, shortly after it, in a book called Deterring Democracy. Um, more has appeared since, but roughly the same story. Uh, what happened is that uh, in, uh, uh, the United States was very strongly supporting Saddam Hussein, remember. Uh, that began in 1982 under Reagan. Uh, we have this thing called the terrorist list, uh, which is uh, just an outrage. Uh, it's a list invented by the government. It's not under any review. If someone's put on it, like say Nelson Mandela, there's nothing you can say about it. Uh, the Mandela case illustrates the way it works. But a very, and it's being used right now, remember. Now, that's being used to attack American groups and so on. The uh, uh, one striking illustration of how it works was in 1982. Saddam Hussein had been on the, Iraq had been on the terrorist list, but the Reagan administration wanted to support Iraq in its aggression against Iran, the bigger enemy. So it was necessary to remove Iraq from the terrorist list. So they were removed. Uh, shortly after Donald Rumsfeld made a famous trip to Baghdad, he was shaking hands with Saddam, arranging for aid to be given and so on. Uh, there incidentally was a gap on the terrorist list then, so it had to be filled. So they decided to put Cuba on the terrorist list. Uh, the reason presumably was because Cuba was far and away the leading victim of international terrorism which in fact had been expanding right through the late 70s. I won't go through the details. So that was the terrorist list. 
U.S. strongly supported Saddam during the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, the Reagan administration even went so far as to block protests against Saddam's worst atrocities, the massacres of the Kurds, you know, Al-Anfal massacre, Halabja. The Reagan administration blocked any action, in fact, tried to blame them on Iran, uh, basically won the war for Iraq. Uh, that by the end, Iran finally capitulated. Uh, after the war was over, the U.S. continued to strongly support Iraq. Uh, this is now George w., the first Bush, George H.W. Bush. Uh, he uh, uh, increased uh, uh, aid to Iraq. He actually invited Iraqi nuclear engineers to the United States for advanced training and nuclear weapons development. That was 1989. Uh, goes on into early 1990. Uh, the Bush administration sent a delegation to Iraq led by Robert Dole, Senator, Senate Majority Leader, you know, later presidential candidate, including Senator Simpson, other dignitaries. They went there to Iraq to bring the president's greetings to his friend Saddam Hussein. The transcript of that meeting is available, and I urge reading it. Uh, they were basically informing Saddam that he should disregard uh, critics in the American press. We have this free press business, we can't shut them up. Uh, but, uh, but they said they would remove somebody from the Voice of America who was criticizing Saddam and so on. Uh, all of that was, I think, April 1990. A great friend. Uh, August 1990, Saddam made his first mistake. He either violated or probably misunderstood orders and uh, invaded Kuwait. Well, there were all kinds of reasons for that. I won't go into them. But whatever they were, he invaded Kuwait. Uh, very quick, the Bush administration immediately recognized that this is an opportunity, not only to switch sides, but to finally, you know, crush him. Uh, they liked him, but it's better to have somebody loyal. Uh, uh, Saddam immediately recognized he'd made a big mistake, and he, within weeks, he began to produce offers to withdraw. The, in Washington, you look back at the debates, the concern was, as Chief of Staff Powell put it, that uh, Saddam will withdraw and leave a puppet regime in place and all the Arab states will be happy. In other words, Saddam would do what the United States had just done in Panama Look at the reports on Noriega today, and you'll notice something's missing. How the United States got rid of Noriega and Panama. Panama, Noriega had also been a big buddy of the United States, but he also kind of uh, stopped obeying orders. They turned against him, uh, invaded Panama, uh, killed hundreds or maybe thousands of people. Nobody counts when they're victims. Uh, attacked the Vatican Embassy where Noriega was trying to get asylum. Uh, finally kidnapped, got him out of the country, took him to Florida, where he was tried and convicted for real crimes, which he had committed while he was on the CIA payroll. Uh, like if you read the papers today, they talk about uh, how the family of Spadafora, one of his victims, are calling for uh, uh, compensation. They failed to mention that Spadafora was mur murdered uh, while the United States was supporting Noriega, 
under Reagan, and in fact praising him for the wonderful things he was doing. That out of history again. Anyhow, they were afraid that uh, Iraq would do just what the U.S. had done in Panama, in invade the country, install a puppet regime, and leave. Uh, the difference was that the Latin American countries were infuriated. They weren't happy about it. Uh, but they thought that the Arab countries would be happy with this. Well, they wanted to block that. Uh, they wanted a chance to invade. Uh, uh, and in fact, if you look over the next couple of months, the media reporting is quite interesting. There were people in the government who were leaking, regularly leaking, uh, offers from Saddam Hussein to negotiate a withdrawal. And the press wasn't covering them. They were finally, they were being published, interestingly, mainly by a small suburban newspaper, Long Island Newsday. It's a Long Island newspaper, which happened to be distributed in New York. So you could get a, the newsstands in New York would have a you know, cover of New Island Newsday with, uh, Long Island Newsday with a big headline saying, uh, Saddam says, let's talk, US says no. Well, you know, after that, the New York Times had to have a comment on page 28 at the bottom of a page the next day saying, you know, State Department denies rumors or something. But these things were almost certainly being leaked to the New York Times. Nobody leaks things to Newsday. And presumably they just wouldn't publish them, so they were leaked to Newsday. This went on for a couple of months. Uh, finally, by January, we're now January 1990, Saddam made a pretty definite offer to withdraw on conditions which were in fact supported by about two-thirds of the American population. Withdrawal from Kuwait, total withdrawal from Kuwait, uh, in the context of a regional uh, uh, conference on security issues. Okay, that's code words for Israel's occupation of Palestine. So of course the U.S. wasn't having any of that. And uh, that also essentially wasn't reported, a couple of lines here and there. And then the US invaded, uh, crushed Iraq easily, uh, destroyed the infrastructure, uh, carried out a really brutal war. I mean, Iraq, of course, withdrew from Kuwait, but it looked as if that could have been easily arranged just by diplomacy and negotiations. Then comes the sanctions regime. That's a huge issue in the Arab world, nothing here. Uh, after 9-11, polls here, taken here about, you know, why did they hate us, that kind of thing, uh, show that one of the main reasons was the Iraq sanctions, even among people very supportive of the United States. The sanctions were really murderous. They killed hundreds of thousands of people. They devastated the civilian population. They strengthened Saddam. They compelled the population to rely on him for survival. They probably pr protected him from the fate of other monsters, those I mentioned, who were overthrown from within. You know, Somoza, Marcos, the rest of them. Uh, he was protected from that. And this, this was known. Uh, the people who knew, mo the Westerners who knew most about Iraq, by far, were the two international diplomats who administered the Oil for Food program. Distinguished international diplomats, uh, Dennis Halliday from Ireland, Hans von Sponek from Germany, uh, very outspoken, uh, 
both resigned on grounds that the sanctions were, as they put it, genocidal. They had a lot of information about Iraq. They had investigators all over the country. They were getting all sorts of information, sending it back to the Security Council where the US wouldn't let it be presented. Both resigned on grounds that the, they were genocidal. Von Sponek published a major book on it. I urge you to read it. It's called A Different Kind of War. Carefully documented scholarly account of what the sanctions were doing. I don't think it's ever been mentioned in the United States or in England, not that I can find at least. Uh, that's what was happening. Uh, that protected Saddam. And then we get to the second invasion. Uh, so there's a lot to say about the first invasion. I mean, you can, you can argue about it. At least it's debatable, un unlike, in my opinion, the second one. But I don't think it stands up very well to scrutiny, and I didn't think so at the time for the kind of reasons I mentioned. You can check them out and see what you think. Uh, hi. Uh, my name is Alex, and I was a bio major, and now I'm a student at the College of Pharmacy with an interest in, like, in my free time for... Uh, political economy, economics, that sort of stuff. And in many of your works, you illustrate the economic doctrines that America imposes on other countries, like ace <clears throat> sorry, asymmetric free trade agreements and overthrowing leaders, uh, outright to just exploit resources and labor power. Um, so what I was wondering is, is it necessary for us to do this if we want the American economy to prosper? So, hmm. Well, first of all, remember, it's the U.S. is just following on the paths of every other imperial power. It's not, you know, new circumstances, but uh, it's doing what Britain did, what France did, what other great powers have done in their day in the sun. And it's easily understandable. Uh, the question that you're raising is quite an interesting one. So what's the impact of this on the American population? Does the American population gain from it? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to measure precisely. But in the case of the British Empire, which has a much longer history, uh, there have been attempts by economic historians to try to do a cost-benefit analysis of the British Empire. So like, how much did they gain? How much did it cost? It's imprecise. You can't put much faith in the figures, there's too many variables. But the rough conclusion, rather rough conclusion seems to be that the costs and benefits more or less balance, that there's a lot of benefits, there's a lot of costs, and they're kind of in the same range, roughly. So why have an empire? Well, the answer to that comes out as soon as you ask who paid the costs, who got the gains, okay? If you look at that, it turns out that the British Empire is essentially class war internal to England. Uh, the people who had the gains, you know, are the people who had shares in the East India Company, you know, the, uh, the banks in the city of London, and so on and so forth. Enormous gains. Who paid the costs? Well, you know, the sailors who were dragooned into the British Navy, the, uh, the poor, the poorer population, and so on. Uh, so it's essentially a form of class war. I think if you look at the American-dominated system, it's pretty similar. So take, say, the war in Vietnam, which I discussed. Uh, for for center, the, the planners understood what they were doing. They wanted to destroy that virus before it spread contagion. 
the same reasons why they imposed dictatorships at the same time in uh, Indonesia, you know, Thailand, Philippines, and so on, you know, kind of like South America. So from their point of view, it was a success. They killed the virus, they prevented contagion, uh, the region didn't move towards independent development, it'll, you know, a long way from it, and it remains pretty much under Western domination, not exactly everything they wanted, but uh, pretty much. Uh, how about the costs? Well, you know, 60,000 American soldiers were killed. Uh, severe uh, uh, economic problems within the country led to stagflation. Uh, in fact, it laid the basis for the developments that took place in the 1970s uh, by severely harming the economy. Then comes all the things that follow. And I think if you take a look case by case, it's sort of like that. Uh, take the Iraq invasion. Uh, it's probably several trillion dollars. Uh, thousands of soldiers killed. Uh, a pretty big, you know, uh, it, it sharply increased terrorism. I don't know how you put a measure on that. But as predicted, it was predicted that the Iraq invasion would increase terrorism. Uh, the intelligence agencies predicted that, the British and American independent experts, and it did. Uh, terrorism went up by a factor of seven. That's big, the year after the invasion. And it sp spread well beyond. It uh, led to a, uh, it led, it increased the perception in the Muslim world, which is very high, that uh, the U.S. is in a war with Islam. You take a look at polls in the Arab world, the Muslim world, there's an overwhelming feeling that the U.S. is at war with Islam. And that, you know, that not only provides a basis kind of a reservoir for terrorism, we've got to defend ourselves, uh, but also just uh, uh, strong anti-US uh, anti feelings which show up in all kinds of ways. Uh, how do you measure that? You, know, you can't put a number on it, but it's certainly harmful to the people of the country and their future. Well, that's the downside. Uh, the upside is, you know, whatever you, you know, win from it. Uh, not most of the population, but others. And I think that if you look, I think it's a very important question and should be looked at. Frankly, I don't think that it's the right criterion to determine whether an invasion is correct or whether terror is correct. Like you don't ask, uh, I suppose Hitler had actually won the war. Well, would it have benefited the German population? It's not the right question, you know. But nevertheless, though, it's not the right question. You can ask it. Uh, and you can ask it for the British Empire, for uh, French atrocities in Africa, which are horrendous, uh, uh, U.S. policy, and so on. And I think if you look at it, it usually turns out to be something roughly like this. It's kind of internal class war within the imperial society. Hi, thank you again for coming. Um, my name's Erica. I'm a junior biochemistry major here. Uh, you seem to have a lot of strong opinions about the United States foreign policy. And my question was, is there anything... <laughs> is there anything... I didn't hear the last part. Is there anything you like about Washington's foreign policy and how it's <laughs> Sure. I mean, take all the countries we haven't invaded. I, I like that. <laughs> uh, the, uh, 
Let me repeat, this is, I mean, I happen to be particularly interested in U.S. foreign policy for two reasons, elementary moral reasons. For one thing, it's by far the most powerful state in the world. So what it does is far more important than what anyone else does. For another one, another reason which is sufficient, even if it wasn't the most powerful state in the world, I'm here. I have a share of responsibility for what the U.S. government does. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, to an extent, I can do something about it, especially in a pretty free country like this one. Now, we understand that very well with regard to enemies. So, for example, take, say, Iranian dissidents like Shirin Abadi and Akbar Ganji and others. Uh, nobody asks them, is there anything good about Iranian foreign policy? It's not their job to say what's good about Iranian foreign policy. You know, there's some things that aren't bad. But that's not their task. Their task is to condemn the crimes of their own state, and we honor them for that. It doesn't matter what they say about the United States or what they say about Israel. Like if Iranian dissidents criticize Israeli crimes, and maybe they're right, but we don't give them any respect for that. And the same ought to be true about Americans who criticize Iranian crimes. You want to do it? Okay, but it's like criticizing the crimes of Genghis Khan. You can't do anything about it, so it's just a way of you know, supporting domestic power or your own reputation. What matters is what you can do something about, and overwhelmingly that means what you're involved in, either directly or indirectly. And we understand that in the case of enemies. We ought to apply the same criteria to ourselves. If you try to do an evaluation of British actions, US actions, French actions, and so on, yeah, you can find things that sometimes are even helpful. Uh, so for example, take George W. Bush, not my favorite person. But uh, I mean, his policies with regard to, uh, say, uh, uh, diseases in Africa were pretty positive, I think. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't think it's a huge issue, frankly. Oh, with this answer, thank you so much.